This is Oren Herskowitz, Executive Director of Columbia Technology Ventures at Columbia University in the city of New York. Today we'll be talking with Dr. Charles Zucker, Professor of Biochemistry and Molecular Biophysics and of Neuroscience, Principal Investigator at Columbia's Zuckerman Institute, and Investigator at the Howard Hughes Medical Institute. Dr. Zucker and I will be talking about taste. He'll explain why our sense of taste is so evolutionarily critical to our survival, how taste was fundamentally misunderstood until about 20 years ago, about the studies he does in his lab where he can control what a mouse wants to eat and not eat or drink and not drink simply by shining light directly into the mouse's brain at their taste receptors, how our stomachs tell our brains to go for real sugar instead of artificial sweeteners, and all about the gut-brain axis, as it's called. Why the Zuckerman Institute and the Jerome L. Green Science Center is such a fabulous place to study neuroscience. And why the Institute has artists-in-residence, including a jazz artist-in-residence, working alongside the scientists. Dr. Zucker, thank you for joining me today. I really appreciate it. I have a general sense of the work of your lab and as it relates initially to vision and now to taste but maybe you could help our listeners understand, how would you describe the work of your lab? So the driving force behind everything we do has been trying to understand how detection, what our senses detect, is transformed into perception. This is now how the brain takes those electrical and or chemical signals and translates them into an internal representation of what that is meant to be. And historically, we've used the visual system trying to understand how a photon of light is translated into an electrical signal that the brain can now process. And over the past, you know, 15 years, it's been the biology of taste. How taste, you know, drives these remarkable actions and behaviors that allow us to decide and to choose what we must or must not consume. And so when a layperson like myself or many of our listeners mm-hmm. thinks about taste, you know, we all grow up thinking you have you have five, you know, you five kinds of taste buds. Yes. Um, and and so I think it's natural for most of us to assume that it's the sort of the taste buds that the the sensory part of that 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 allows you to 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 taste to taste something but my understanding is it's not quite that simple no you know taste ultimately is in the brain you know the brain is this extraordinary conductor of body biology it's at the epicenter of not only who we are at the core of our souls but what our biology is meant to be. And so the role of the taste system is to detect five basic taste qualities. Our entire taste palette is only five things. Sweet, sour, bitter, salty, and umami. Umami is the taste of proteins. And each of them has a critical function in guiding our key consumatory food choices. It is the main gateway into our body. And so sweet is to ensure that you have the rich caloric source in your diet. Umami, proteins, we need amino acids. 
salts to maintain your electrolyte balance, and then bitter and sour to ensure rejection of toxic, noxious chemicals. Mm. You know, sour because most spoiled fermented food produce acid, and so it warns you. I mean, we humans, you know, like to live on the edge. So we do things that no other animal in the wild will do. Yeah, can you put, you know, extra lemon juice there, please? Right. Kimchi. Let me have tonic water. I mean, what? You know. Right. So, but but it, it, for the most, it functions as this, you know, key entry into the body. And it's intimately regulated by our internal state. Okay? So things taste better when we're hungry. Why? It's the same food that you had, you know, before. Why not? So clearly your brain changes and it modifies the way these stimuli are now being transformed into percepts. Right. Well, Sue, if I could ask you some follow-up questions on yeah. that. Yeah. Um, if the purpose of taste is really to help us regulate our, essentially our underlying biology, yes. calories and protein yes. and amino acids yes. and avoid bitterness, yes. then uh, how do you square that with the fact of the great variety of human tastes? I mean, even across yes. populations, but also within the same family. Well, yes and no. So first of all, you need to separate what's basic taste versus flavor. Now, let me take the simpler part of your question. You know, bitter represents an entire universe of bad news chemicals. And we actually have three dozen bitter receptors, different in our tongue. But we use a single word to define that sensory experience. And the same single word is used in every culture. How could this be? It's a thousand different, a million different chemicals. It's because they all evoke the same Percept. Are we on here? Yep. Okay. Sweet single receptor. And again, a single word in every. Co okay. So, on the one hand, there's no conundrum here. If you look at the basic taste themselves, just the five units, that's it. There's no magic across cultures or across individuals. Now, what you're referring to, however, is the concept of flavor. And why, when we say we have different tastes, we really perceive flavor differently. And flavor is the combination, is the multi-sensory integration of multiple qualities. Taste, odor, texture, temperature, and sight. Now, food tastes different when you look at it and it looks incredibly appetizing. The very same stimuli changes in your brain if it actually looks unappetizing. The, the, the point is that ultimately taste, like almost every other sensory experience, it's really in your brain. Mm. Yeah. And as you know from our experiments, we can actually go into the brain of a mouse, activate specific taste neurons, and we can have this mouse experience fully that taste response, even though we're giving the animal absolutely nothing. When you started researching the field of taste, yes. 
the common perception within the scientific community of how taste works was different than the way it's understood. Fundamentally now. different. So can you explain the way it used to be seen and what you now understand? Yeah, I mean, people used to believe... And used to means like no, only 20, 20 years, years ago. ago. Yeah. yeah. And, and I can tell you that as far as our work has now shown, it was fundamentally wrong at almost every level of logic. Yeah? We've now shown that you have taste receptor cells that come in five different qualities. Sweet cells, sour cells, bitter cells, salty cells, and umami cells. And each of them is dedicated, tuned, so to speak, to a single taste quality. Just like the keys of a piano. You play this key and that's the only thing you get. But the entire field for the previous 50 years had proposed that individual taste receptor cells could respond to multiple taste qualities. And what the brain then had to do was to come up with ways to decode this complex signal to uncover what was the nature of the stimuli. Hmm. Now, this of course was made zero sense because in the case of taste, you're dealing with life and death. Sweet, it's critical to maintain you know, the level of energy to sustain the body and bitter will kill you. So it could not be that the same class of cell or circuit would deal with both stimuli and then have to brain the brain worry about decoding it. Should I eat it or should I not eat it? And so, in fact, it was this nonsensical view that guided a lot of our early work. This notion that it cannot be. This has to operate as discrete, separate, individual signals that tell the brain, should I consume it or should I not consume it? Mm. Now, of course, superimposed on that is how that's modulated by the internal state, by whether you're hungry, whether you're not hungry, whether you're thirsty, whether you're happy, whether you're sad. The, the basic logic on how, what the architecture of the system was, right. was in essence incorrect. In, in many of my other interviews that I've done, the path of the researcher's scientific career has evolved in parallel to sort of underlying advances in other fields that have unlocked their work. And it could be, you know, I was talking to Wendy Chung uh, about uh, her the okay, work in genetics. Okay, biology, of and, course. And, you know, she was describing that back in her days at Rockefeller, when they were running DNA sequencing, they literally had to, like, bring the film over to the window and yes. try and, like, visually... <laughs> look through it and yeah. and that uh, yeah, sequencing has become faster and cheaper and yeah. it, it it's unlocked uh, huge amounts of her work are there similar parallels to what yeah I mean what the, I think the, the, the key to me is that we're now at a time of an extraordinary richness of tool and this I think is exactly certainly where I want to be you know ultimately I want to be limited by ingenuity and creativity not by how to do it uh, you know, if I fail, it's because I'm not smart enough to figure it out. I don't want to fail because I don't have the means or the technology to explore it. My view has always been technology is nothing but a means. And if we need to develop it, we develop it. And if we need to learn it, we learn it. And if we need to borrow it, we borrow it. Hmm. Yeah? And my understanding, I mean, you've been involved with the Zuckerman Mind Bain Behavior Institute from the very beginning as one of the, yes. the founders of it. Um, my understanding of what 
is that some of that collaborative nature and the ability to borrow and intersect is actually woven into the entire fabric of the building, like the yes. design. Can you talk a little bit about the building and, and where the yeah. idea came from? Well, the idea, I think, was the brainchild, ultimately, of Lee Bollinger, you know, which is, in my mind, an extraordinary force that's guided this institution for, I don't know, 20 years? 20 years, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, the whole Manhattan deal, yeah. But the Zuckerman Mind, Brain, and Behavior Institute began by the interactions of Eric Andel, Tom Gissel, and Richard Axel with two great benefactors. First was Mrs. Green, which provided the funding that made this a reality, mm. you know, honoring her husband. And, and that really opened a world of possibilities. And then, of course, Mort Zuckerman. And I think the vision and the mission was from the very beginning to create a mecca for neuroscience, a place where people from very disparate fields come together to think about totally different ways, orthogonal ways, to solve the greatest mystery in science, the workings of our brain. And from the very beginning, the view was we need to have a singular place where not spread all around the university. I mean, that works, but there is something magical about all being together that mixes biologists with physicists, with chemists, with psychologists, with mathematicians, with statisticians, with engineers. 50 people represented 50 different ways of looking at different problems, all with a singular goal, to uncover the magic of the brain. Mm -hmm. And that vision and mission, here we are 10 years later. This is the 10 year anniversary of Zuckerman. Mm. I think it's been truly a spectacular success. It's, ama it's an amazing place. I, I, and I mean the physical place, it's, an, it's a beautiful building, but also the place in the sense of the, the community that's been built oh, here. And the intensity and the energy. And let me, let me tell you about the physical place. I mean, this entire Manhattanville campus, where this was the founding building, yep. it was the creation of Renzo Piano, you know, the great, great, amazing architect. And I think he understood what we needed. The, you know, just like taste is modified by the internal state, our ability to be creative, to look at different ways of solving problems, it's also affected by our place yeah. and our environment. I don't mean intellectual environment, I mean physical environment. And for, for the listeners who haven't had the chance to come see the new campus yet, it is an amazing place. I mean, not only the the the, the Zuckerman Institute and the Jerome Green Science Center, but uh, directly across the street, maybe 10 feet away, is the Lenfest Center for the Arts, the new... Uh, the, business the, schools. The business school, the two new business school buildings, the forum across the street. There's this uh, vibrancy and sense of interconnectivity. I had the privilege of coming to one of your events 
with one of your artists in residence where you Absolutely. spoke. Yeah. And it's probably pretty unique to have a neuroscience building have a jazz artist in residence and a visual artist. Like, why was that important to you? Look, neuroscience affects the brain affects every single intellectual activity that a university engages in. Understanding the brain will impact every single field. You know, from law, whether you're predetermined to act a certain way, you know, all the way to history. Now, artists play with our senses. You know, how is it that a picture can evoke such amazing emotions? I mean, it's just a bunch of colors in a canvas. Right. Yeah? And yet, they can touch the deepest of your soul. You know, a poet reads two sentences and they touch you in a way that you had never expected it or predicted it. How? How does that happen? We figure music play with the same keys in a slightly different order can evoke happiness all the way to sadness. So we reason that there is a dialogue here. They play with our feelings and senses. They understand how to do it. We want to understand how the brain mm. takes sensory signals and changes them into this magic that happens. Right. Okay. So we need to do something about this. Yeah. And that was the origin of what generically you could define as artist in residence, but it truly now represents an artist in residence, which is a visual artist, a writer in residence, and a jazz artist in residence. Mm. Yeah? Let's talk a little bit about, because you just talked about trying to really understand how the brain makes sense of what, it, what it's receiving. And so let's talk about the mouse experiment. Yeah, I mean, look, the, I, I, I could start even with a simpler experiment uh, in, in the field of thirst. We, we identify early on some of the key circuits that represent the sense of thirst. Now, we reason that when you're very thirsty, you're motivated to drink water because there must be something in your brain that's telling you you're thirsty and you have to drink water. And so a uh, former postdoc in my laboratory, Yuki Oka, now a professor at Caltech, you know, reasoned that if we make a mouse very, very, very thirsty, maybe there are specific neurons in the brain that will light up. And these are the neurons in the brain that are representing a state of thirst. Mm. Now, if these neurons indeed represent the sense of thirst, there is a prediction. And the prediction, this is a thought experiment, is that if I take an animal that's not thirsty at all, and I go into the brain of this mouse, and I activate artificially these neurons, this mouse should think it's thirsty. Irrespective of whether it really needs it, water. You got it. Okay. 
And so we went on to do that experiment. It turns out that there is technology now that allows us to target specific activators of neurons to any neuron we want in the brain, pretty much. Either based on location or based on their genetic identity. And are, so are you, uh, are you impacting that at a moment in the mouse life or are you breeding mice that are no, constantly No, no, no. We're impacting it. At, it turns out that these activators it are turned on by light. Hmm. So we genetically engineer a mouse that contains these activators in a specific group of neurons. Let's say the neurons in the brain that represent the taste of sweet. And so we go into the cortex of these mice, introducing to those neurons this light-activated molecules that turn on neurons, but in their native state, they're silent. So the mouse is just potting around, doing what it does. And then right over these neurons, we put a fiber optic cable that allows us to turn a light on or off, a laser light. And when the light is on, this light activator gates, there are little doors that in essence open ion channels in these neurons mm. that now activate them. Then light will turn them on, the neurons will turn on, and now that circuit will be activated. Okay. Okay, that's a technology. So we're sort of picturing a mouse with a fiber optic cable pointing directly into its brain. Into its brain, into the area where this group of neurons that we want to activate are located. Okay. okay. So we do this, let's say, in the sweet cortex. And we turn now the laser on, that it's now used to activate those sweet neurons. And lo and behold, this mouse now begins to behave exactly as if he's receiving a sweet stimuli. But the mouse is getting nothing. Or even more remarkable, we can put them in the bitter neurons. And this mouse will start gagging and cleaning its tongue of a non-existing fictive taste. Hmm. And if we do this in these thirsty neurons in the brain, this mouse will start drinking water to no end. Even though the mouse is not thirsty at all. But the brain is telling the mouse you are thirsty. We're doing these experiments not to play with a mouse's brain, but as a way to uncover how these circuits operate, both in normal and disease states, so we can understand how signals are being, you know, decoded in each of these sensory pathways. So I will put some links in the, in the, in the description for these, Mm -hmm. for this podcast, so people can see these videos, but they're incredibly striking. They are. And, uh, What's more striking is that in each case, we're only activating a small number of neurons. So a mouse has 100 million neurons, a mouse brain. And we're activating a few hundred neurons. And that out of the 100 million neurons, if they happen to be the right neurons in the right place, can completely evoke a full sensory experience. Many of us think of ourselves as having, you know, we, we pride ourselves on having unique personalities. We do. And, and, and part of, and such a core part of those personalities is what we like, art we like, music we like, uh, yes. tastes we like. My wife 
hates olives. I love sardines. She can't stand them. I like spicy food. She won't do spicy food. You know, my kids have grown from eating nothing but mac and cheese to yes. having more complicated palates, and I'm proud of them for that growth, as if that's something defining about whether they're good yes. people or not. Yes. And I guess, as you do these kind of experiments, how, do you, how does that make you feel about no, what it means no, to be human? No, 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 you need to reconcile it with the following thing. So we work on circuits, we my lab, which are hardwired. Hardwired are circuits that are set up to trigger predetermined actions and behaviors. And you want them to be hardwired because they mediate responses that want to eliminate any act of thinking. If I get something bitter sense by my tongue, I want to spit it out and immediately reject it. Why? Because otherwise it's going to kill me. Remember, this is not about us humans. This is about the evolution of our senses. Right. These are animals in the wild. Yeah? It's like sweet. You know, we, we humans now co-opt these circuits for our own pleasure. And as a result of that, we are now facing you know, nearly a billion people, that's the estimated for the next 20 years, in the world, suffering from obesity and metabolic disorders. How could this be? So these circuits evolved, so these hardwired circuits, thirst, you know, taste. There are many, many other such examples. To ensure that you have a predetermined program of response. Now, that doesn't mean that they are not subjected to modulation. And they are. Hunger, sated, happy. When you're happy, things taste very differently than when you're unhappy, right? Yeah. And so, and so you still have, you know, taste memories, my goodness, one bad, you know, oyster. Yeah. And you will remember that. Or tequila for many of us. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that. <laughs> and, and, and so, and so, you know, none of that changes the fact that they, they, they are, they are, you know, part of a far, you know, larger interplay of sensory inputs that ultimately you know, lead to this multi-sensory integration that gives meaning to complex stimuli. Mm. You know, people don't just get sweet, sour, bitter, salty, and umami. They get these complex, you know, flavors, like we said before. So none of that impacts the fact that we are unique and individual. Yeah? And in fact, our senses are all unique and individual. You know, variations in each of our receptors allow us to see the world slightly different and to taste the world slightly differently, and to smell the world slightly. Now, in most cases, it's close enough. So green is green for you and for me. Right. But I can tell you right now that your green is different than my green. And your sweet vis-a-vis -vis intensity, the same amount of sugar to you and to me, in both cases will be unambiguously sweet. But I can tell you that in both cases, it's going to have a very different level of intensity. Mm. So there still is a level of like... Oh, there is a level of uniqueness that's defined by, you know, differences in our genome. We've been talking a lot about the brain. And one of the things I think is so interesting about many of the science that's done at Columbia is the understanding that part of our experience of what things we think of as being our personality is actually impacted not only by the brain, which is not surprising that the brain would be involved, but by other parts of the body that are typically thought of as sort of dumb, in a sense, I'm air quoting that, but 
you know, Dr. Libel's work around leptin and, and fat and the, the conversation between our fat cells in the brain. Or uh, Gerard Carsenti, Dr. Carsenti's work up, uh, on osteocalcin in the bones and the way the bones have a conversation going with the brain. You know, we neuroscientists have historically viewed the brain as the center of our thoughts, our emotions, our memories, our experiences. But what's emerging now is a slightly far more, I think, unexpected story. And it's the fact that the brain really is, as I alluded before, the conductor of a symphony of body biology. The brain is monitoring the state of every single one of your internal organs. Everyone. And depending on the signals it gets, it's now sending, descending messages as to how it should be modulated or altered. Now, this communication highway between the body and the brain is this two-way signaling where the brain is monitoring and then is sending signals back down saying, change this. Mm -hmm. It's mediated, you know, principally by this one major axis, which is the vagal nerve. It's one of the main conductors of this extraordinary interplane between the brain and the body. And the signaling, this body vagal brain signaling, comes in many different shapes and forms. But one of the most interesting is what's referred to now colloquially as the gut-brain axis. It's this line of communication between your gut and the brain where the gut is telling your brain everything that's in there, and the brain is now deciding what actions to take. So it's not a unilateral, it's not only one direction, it's a a bidirectional communication. And so, you know, for a long time we've been studying the sense of taste. And in particular, we've been studying, you know, the neural basis for our attraction to sugar and fat. You know, two, you know, really essential components of our diet but that over the last, you know, 30 years, they have evolved as the major sources of one of the greatest problems in human health, which is overconsumption of sugar and fat. And so we wanted to understand where is that coming from? What are the forces driving our insatiable appetite for sugar and fat? And a priori, we, like many others, assume that it has to do with signals that the tongue is sending to the brain, saying, this is really good, this tastes wonderful, I want more of it. But what has emerged, in fact, is an interplay you know, between two completely different circuits. One is the tongue telling the brain what it, want, what it likes, what it likes, and the other one is the gut telling the brain what it wants. Hmm. It's the difference between liking and wanting. And so we have identified a circuit going from the gut straight to the brain that reports the presence of intestinal sugar and fat. So when you consume sugar, 
actual sugar, not aspartame, not No, it does not work for artificial sweeteners at all. Hmm. And the reason that artificial sweeteners have failed in the market in really mimicking the effects of sugar. Because they mimic the liking by acting on your tongue receptors, but they don't activate your gut-brain axis. So they never satisfy your craving for sugar. You know, in essence then, you know, you take a sugary drink, let's say with sugar, it activates your tongue sweet sensors. The brain says, mm-mm, this is delicious. And you like it. And maybe you want to drink a bit more. It now makes it all the way down to your gut. And in there, now the gut now tells the brain, we got sugar, which is what we need. And so next time that you see that, that's what you want to consume. Mm. Because this is what I need to satisfy my need. Mm. Not my liking. Right. That's, that's fascinating because yeah. it really does put the, the role of the, the gut in a, in a in, I mean, you, you talked about oh, the brain being oh, the master that, symphonic, oh, the, the conductor of the symphony. But but the instru- the orca- the instruments on that orchestra oh, yeah. are actually smarter than they oh, might have appeared. Look, not only that. I mean, it, it provides an entire new light to to e- e- even simple concepts like you know, I have a gut feeling. Right. You know what? You do you have, have a gut, gut feeling. feeling. Yeah. Uh, and and the, the I want to talk a little bit about your startups because mm-hmm. the commercial implications of your work are. I mean, I'm guessing to many of our listeners mm-hmm. are, are obvious at this point. How did you get interested in, in not only a life of an academic scientist, but in creating startup companies? So, look, I'm a basic scientist at my very core. And, and that's what I want to dedicate my life to. But I think all of us, you know, are thoughtful enough that we know that if something that we're doing could have a meaningful impact in human health, it's worth considering it because then maybe not only we could do some really nice basic science but maybe hopefully do some actual good in in impacting human health the so-called fourth purpose that president Bolger is talking you got about it. yeah and and so like you pointed out for some of these things it's just too obvious we do a lot of work where to find the path from there to the clinic or to human health it's not necessarily obvious but there are times where you see it and right there in front of you is a potential answer to an important problem. And so the startups I've been involved with, I think largely have resulted from that unique interface where the work ultimately said, my goodness, there is a real need in here and maybe this can help make a difference. Mm. Yeah, so the first start, Startup was Aurora Biosciences, and Aurora, you know, happened at the time where we had the the uh, the, the unique intersection of two major scientific events: one, the completion of the human genome, revealing now the existence of thousands of new targets, and on the other hand, the development of new chemical libraries that can be generated chemicals that can be generated in the lab to complexities of millions that afford the chance now of having thousands of new targets and millions of new molecules and begin to search for function. Mm. Because many of these targets are going to be important for a wide range of human diseases. But here's a challenge. 
How do you screen thousands of targets against millions of molecules? And the existing technology would have taken decades to go through, you know, such combinatorial numbers. And Aurora was based on the discovery of technology that allow you to miniaturize the entire screening logic by a factor of a thousand. So you could do it much faster, much So cheaper, in essence, what will take you, you know, a thousand days you could do now in one day. Hmm. And you could do the math, yeah? Yeah. And so, it, 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 yeah, and it was all based largely on the brilliancy of my co-founder, Roger Chen. This, you know, brilliant man that won the Nobel Prize in Chemistry for his work in GFP. Got it. And so what would that be used for? Oh, so it allowed now for the first time to to take entire families of potential targets and look for small molecules that modify their function. And among those was an entire program on ion channels. Mm. And out of that emerged Vertex Pharmaceuticals bought Aurora Biosciences. And as you probably know, Vertex's greatest success has been in the area of cystic fibrosis. Right. where in essence the world of CF has been transformed thanks to Vertex. Right. And that work on modifying that unique ion channel is work that emerged out of Aurora Biosciences. So that sounds incredibly rewarding. Something about this obviously was appealing to you because you did it not only with Aurora, but you've launched three more companies since then, including Calliope. What about that experience was 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 rewarding enough to want to do it again and again. You could spend your whole life in, between the lab and you're an amazing photographer. I'm sitting in Dr. Zucker's office surrounded by his photography. There's, you've got all sorts of ways you could spend your time. Uh, what is it about creating startups that you find so appealing? I mean, first, I, I think the, there is the possibility of creating some real good. No, I'm a strong believer that science has to be supported at its very core for just basic discoveries. Because it is those basic discoveries with no predetermined, preconceived expectation that anything out of it will ultimately, you know, help alleviate disease is what has made this country such an incredible engine for discovery and change. Mm. I mean, you know, if, if you told me that the, the basis for everything we know about cell death and cell death-based therapies in cancer came from basic work in a worm, you know, I would have told you, yeah, what? Why are we funding research in worms? Or everything that we now use as therapies for a lot of heart diseases have to do with ion channels that allow your heart to do what it does that came from studying a fly, a fruit fly, that was shaking uncontrollably. It's a shaker flies. Mm. And, 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 you know, in here you have, you know, politicians asking, why are we funding research in fruit flies and in worms? It's because unrestricted support for basic science leads to amazing things. 
So that's the first part that I need to emphasize. And, and that's what makes this country have such amazing advances all the way from technology to biology. It's because we are agnostic about what's going to be the use. Right. So the NIH and the NSF and the other funders of the, of the work. May, yeah. You got it. Yeah. And out of that have come every therapy for cancer nowadays. And cystic fibrosis. And the list goes on and on. All right. Now, I am, of course, at the extreme of that position where I feel that, come on, I'm working with mice, looking at how they taste the world. Yeah. <laughs> but out of that are coming interesting discoveries, like our work on the gut-brain axis, that can help us change how we think about accessing brain circuits through the gut, rather than me having to inject something in the brain. Maybe all I have to do is have you eat something, go to your gut, and send the signal to the brain. Yeah? And so I, I think it's that inspiration that maybe the work can be translated into really making a difference in human health that has prompted me time and time again to fall into that in-between where this is the kind of stuff that now should be passed on to a startup. Right. So now they can dedicate their life to help solve this by creating new medicines while I can continue to focus on yeah. On mouse, mouse eating oh, mouse brains, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've, I've heard from some of our listeners that, that, that they're young PhD students or, or medical students or even undergrads trying to think about their career path. It can be this sort of, I think, an illusion much of the time that the people at the top of their professions, people like you and, and your peers here, um, that it was a straight path. You always knew what you wanted to do. You were born you know, caring about mouse taste cells. When you think about advice to give to young aspiring scientists, was this where you thought you'd be? You have to divide this into two parts. The first one is, you know, is this what I always wanted to do? And the answer is a resounding yes. You know, from the time I was five years old, I knew this is what I needed to do. I mean, I was, you know, taking little insects apart, which again, I've said this before, it's not uncommon for a young boy, but I would then take the parts into a microscope. Right. Yeah? So that is the uncommon part. It's not the destructive impulse. <laughs> it was rather, how does this work? Yeah. yeah? And, so, and so for me, like many of my colleagues, this is not either a job or a career at all. It's a vocation. We have no choice. This is what I have to do. This, this flows in my veins. This is who we are. This is who I am. All right. Now, that needs to be separated from this rosy picture and now look at you, you know, how wonderful things worked out. That's not the way it goes, yes? I mean, science is a never-ending journey of trying to open the next little door that will bring you into the next little door before you can get to the big doors. But the rewards we get at each of those opens, it's just extraordinary. Because we are looking at the mysteries yeah, of biology right there, head on, as each of those little doors opens. But to open those doors, 
there is a huge amount of failures. So this rosy picture, here you are 30 years later, you know, science, biotech, you know, big laboratory, Columbia University, Zuckerman, it's peppered by one failure after another. But it's those wonderful successes that fuels this engine of discovery that we dedicate our lives to. Yeah? Yeah. And so and I've been lucky to be surrounded by incredible graduate students, postdocs, and people research associates and assistants in my lab that make this both so rewarding and really possible. Yeah. So Dr. Zucker, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. Mm -hmm.